right, nice job. Good set. Let's do some social kick. Hey, social kick crew. On today's episode, we talked to James Gibson. While James is currently known for his leadership of the Energy Standard professional swim team, he's also a former world champion and Olympic finalist in the breaststrokes. His training squad is not only one of the very few elite teams of professional swimmers in the world, they do something no other pro team does. They practice and compete together as one team. Sounds simple, but this model doesn't exist in swimming, and what Energy Standard created was the precursor for starting a professional swim league that we now know as the ISL. This conversation was recorded the day James learned his team's travel plans for 2021 might be in peril due to new travel restrictions related to the pandemic, adding another obstacle to the list he and his team have had to navigate in an unprecedented year. This was a good opportunity to share some laughs and get the inside perspective on how the ISL brass plans to continue improving the league, while also picking the brain of a guy who coaches a diverse collection of the fastest swimmers on the planet. We had a blast chatting with James. We hope you enjoy listening to it. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with James Gibson. Welcome back to another episode of the Social Kick Podcast. I'm Brian Lundquist. We got a full crew today, Dr. John Mullen, Luke Paddington, and our guest today, Special coach from ISL, big time swimmer. Welcome, Energy Standard coach James Gibson. What's going on, James? Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's going to be good to have a little chat with you. I've seen a lot of the stuff you've done, and Brian also. Thanks for having me. Uh, two weeks ago, it was nice to catch up and talk about ISL, and uh, hopefully, uh, we can have a good conversation today. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you too. Where, first of all, so you you're from the UK. And the, there's some, some recent restrictions going on. Where, where are you right now? Well, I'm just outside London. And uh, yeah, so uh, I tell you what, us British have been very special. We've somehow made, made, well, made the coronavirus a little bit worse, a little bit more <laughs> contagious. So uh, the whole world has decided to close their doors to us today. Um, now, tough times, uh, especially running an international program. I got some pretty devastating news today that uh, Turkey, the air corridor between Turkey and the UK is closed. Mm-hmm. So uh, all plans for 2021 have kind of been thrown out the window as of about 12 hours ago. So uh, uh, mm-hmm. talking to me on a pretty raw day, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'll be as honest as I can. And uh, like I said, running an international program in this this period has been uh, quite a challenge since uh, March of last year, or this yeah. year. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Well, bummed to hear that. Can you can you get what about the channel? Can you? You said no air travel. Uh, all gone, all done. So um, the cool. uh, you know in, the virus has mutated uh, about ten kilometers up the road from me, and um, so what's happened is it's a lot more contagious. So it's 80 percent more contagious yeah. than it has been before. So therefore, uh, ex- extreme restrictions have been placed on London, the south of England, no travel in and out of London or restricted areas as of uh, yesterday morning. Yeah. And uh, as of today, pretty much each country one by one is banning any travel to and from the, the UK. And uh, like I said, you know, to run a, you know, at the start of last year, to, we were all looking pretty good, just finished the ISL final. Uh, just won that event and then uh, uh, ever since sort of February, March time, we've been thrown into a little bit of chaos and trying to run an international group when travel is very re- much restricted and quarantine, it's uh, become quite a challenge to say the least. Shoot. Well, thanks for joining us on a day like today. I know you got yeah, a lot no going problem. on. Man, um, I-, I would imagine, you know what, we were, we were looking at something before this started, and I think maybe something that your swimmers could get some humor out of, so we'll send this to you after. But for now, i got to give you a hard time about something. I was going back and watching your Athens final. You have got to tell me about this start of yours. The hitch kick. there you know they provided a little bit of extra momentum you know we used to do the two-footed start back in the day we're not not too long ago 15 years ago uh it was one of those ones you climb on the block you stand on the block at the back of the block they say take your mark you take two steps forward both toes over the edge then you go down so uh you know there's one of those little things back in the day used to help me a little bit before the uh track start uh sort of developed over time and i think it was a little bit time Behind the times, the first time I ever did that as an athlete was, I think, 2009, when I suddenly realized looking to cross my 
uh, my race analysis. I was the only one still doing a two-footed start. I was like, no, it's time to <laughs> time to evolve a little bit or be left behind. Do you think they should allow false starts again? You know what, false starts in swimming? Yeah, false, yeah, they used to in the 80s when I swam. You used to be able to like outside your guy and go like jump the gun. <laughs> it wasn't allowed. You could just push it, right? It wasn't allowed, but you <laughs> come on now. Get DQ'd. <laughs> well, well, yeah, what was back in the day? And you, you, there was a few swimmers that were, were very famous. We literally just get on the block and just fall in and because yeah. <laughs> you knew you could get away with it. I think it was when I was still swimming, it was three false starts. So, so when they still have out, this in track, I don't uh, understand so, why do they still have it? Yeah, yeah, so no, but there was three false starts, but then it was just take it got to a point it was taking forever. Like, it was right. a legitimate false start, what's a game playing, and you just you know these the meets would end up taking forever, so that's that's why they changed the rules. It was was for no other reason. And I remember they bought it into athletics, and I think uh, that worked a little bit. And they got rid of it, and they bought it back again. Uh, then they got rid of it again. Uh, but you know, I think the system works generally in swimming. Um, yep, and there's no real complaints. But us swimmers, we're a very compliant breed, aren't we? So whenever there's a new rule, um, we all accept it. You know, there's there's a bit of a buzz going on about dolphin kick on breaststroke at the minute and what's the exact line and so uh, i think you know that i'm pretty sure the powers that be will clarify that moving forward but uh that seems to be the in fashion thing at the minute well you and i talked about that a little bit uh the when we last spoke about the breaststroke technique and some controversy there and i think you know there's a couple really fundamental shifts in stroke technique over time i mean the ones that stand out to me are david burkoff uh, you know, his blast off and introducing underwater dolphin kick in a way that was just totally different to what everybody else was doing. And I mean, you know, lately I've listened to a conversation with John Moffat in the public eye on, on Rich Roll's podcast and my my namesake no, of no relation, but Steve Lundquist in 84 is a breaststroker. Um, and, you know, the techniques that they were using for breaststroke in those days was completely different from what today's breaststroke is. Um, and maybe there's some elements that are still in play, but it's like Burkoff, and then you've got things like Katajima going, uh, you know, double dolphin kick underwater, and that influencing a big rule shift in underwater pullouts for breaststroke. But mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't know when you look at those strokes today versus you know what was happening in the '80s. Like it's almost like they're not even the same stroke. What do you think that that's a positive direction? Yeah, I'd say pretty much a guy called Roman Sludnov was the last of the old breed of breaststroke. It's like very flat, kind of looked uh, very low in the water uh, style breaststroke. Uh, not a power-based athlete. He was the last guy, really, he was the first man to break 60 in Fukuoka in uh, 2001 World Champs. So he was kind of the last of these technicians. I guess Ed Moses was quite similar back in the mm -hmm. day with us, quite low. And then what we've seen is a real development more towards a real power-based stroke like that all the breaststroke guys are generally some of the biggest on the pool deck and i we were talking about adam pt last week like if I, I i've broken down his stroke a thousand times on the videos and i've watched it and and it's it's just hips are just glued to the surface of the water his pull you know his elbows they just stay so far forward his pull it's not mm -hmm. a pull anymore his hands just come here and they flip in it's like in so the elbows just stay right in the front of the stroke and the guy's phenomenally well conditioned, and uh, we start to seeing that that replicate through the women's uh, the women's strokes. So we see a lot of evolution with the men. We let's talk about freestyle, the three quarter catch up, uh, the Michael Phelps, you know, the Ryan Lochte style, Phelps in 07 in Melbourne when he did the 200 freestyle in the the first edition of the, the speedo paper suit which everyone back in the day was telling them was faster. They chose to ignore us. Uh, uh, but then they made one and it just blew everyone out of the water. Uh, but Phelps on the three-quarter catch-up. Now we see Ledecky swimming exactly like the same sort of style as the, the men. And uh, the, women's, the, women's, the women's are just getting stronger and stronger and they're evolving as well. But we're, like, we're yet to see a, really a female straight-arm freestyler. Uh, I know Sarah's got like a half-breed stroke, but we're really yet to see like this real... Florent Manadou, Ben Proud, Caleb's got a, sort of a high, I call it a hybrid straight arm. It's mm -hmm. like a mix between a bent arm and a straight arm. So a lot of developments in the breaststroke, the male breaststroke, I think we'll start to see come through with the women. We've got a young Benny Pilato, uh, just swam amazing at the 
was 15 years old, just from amazing Italian championships. I had the privilege of working with her throughout ISL and she has huge gains to come. Just got to let her enjoy the process and let her have fun and uh, let her develop. But I guess we'll see the women really start to take on more of a power style like the Adams, the Ilya Shimanovic's of the world. You know, like Arno Kaminga also in the Netherlands. He's, he's very, very impressive, very consistent. And, you know, on a great or 200, but he's, he's big, you know, he's built. He's obviously doing a lot of dry land work. Hmm. Yeah, definitely with Pilato, I think she's definitely the next iteration of where the women's breaststroke. I mean, Lily has somewhat of that too with the high tempo and staying high towards the water, but Pilato's tempo and hip height and, like you said, some of that undulation, she's definitely, you know, learning to use her power and her tempo with it as well. But it's interesting what you said about the straight arm female freestylers. There's, like you said, some hybrid versions of it, but yeah, just off the top of my head, a pure straight arm freestyle sprinter on the female side. None are all the way there yet. I think they're close, though. That's for sure. Yeah, like, uh, I don't know what your guys' opinions are, but um, I think it's a lot to do with strength and connection through the core. Like, um, mm -hmm. I do see a lot a lot of female swimmers trying the straight arm, but they just don't have quite the connection of the men. The hips snake a little bit. They bounce in the water. There's a lot of up and down movement. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's just there's just a lack of strength at the minute, but uh, someone like Sarah is definitely getting very close. Uh, like she's very she's not far off, but I'm, I, I actually think the female freestyle world record time is is nowhere near where it should be. Like I think that can I honestly think that that can go 23 low, and it, it won't be won't be long until that happens. Uh, and I think as soon as someone really can have to really get a grasp of uh, uh, like that, that stroke and that control, I think they'll take it to another level. Yeah, I think core, core stability, like you said, and then obviously a lot of the female sprinters are, are pretty tall. And to be that tall with that arm length, they require just more of that shoulder stability where we know females, just upper body stability just is usually a little bit behind the men's. But over time, it certainly will progress. I mean, uh, there are, I think, a few straight arm sprinters, but most of them are shorter you know, on the female side. And it's likely just because they don't have that long a lever arm to require that stability. So I'm sure, like you said, pretty soon there'll be a combination of a woman that can do that. And the 23 low, that's that's pretty darn fast. That's for sure. Yeah, no, but it's, you know, I, I, I'm i very, very privileged that uh, I've worked with, uh, say, Francesca House or Sarah Pernil Bloom. I, I've seen a lot of the, the best mm -hmm. um how they work out. And also through my experience, Ranomi, Femke, through the Dutch team. I worked on the Dutch team earlier on in my coaching career. And uh, I, 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 we're nowhere near the envelope yet with, yeah. these, with these ladies. And they're exceptional. Like I, I see, I watch Ranomi do a start and she's almost as fast as the boys, you know, through to 15. And, uh, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I see elements in the female training program, especially the, with the, girl, the ladies I work with or I have worked with. And that, that there's definitely there's definitely massive mar, uh, margin for improvement. I was just going to bring up um, Janet Evans. Wasn't she a sort of a hybrid? I know she's distance, but wasn't her stroke sort of hybrid above the water, like a straight arm a little bit? I haven't seen her swim in 10, 15 years on TV, but what do you think of Janet's stroke? She had a very different stroke, and we all could have said it's been ugly, and that's not the way to swim, but her, her time spoke for herself. I don't know. Do you think it, it can apply to more than just a sprint if we if we apply it? I mean, I mean, if you just look at someone like Gregorio Paltrinieri, uh, and yeah. Yeah. you know what, everyone has a an opinion of what's good and what's not, and I think as long as you have a model in your head as an as a coach of what you're looking for, and you can adapt that model to the athlete, and not every athlete That's right. will swim the same way. So if I talk about straight arm freestyle, Ben Prowl, Florian Manadou both swim straight arm, but it's completely different. Mm -hmm. Their connection mm -hmm. points are different. Their shoulders sit in a different place. Mm -hmm. uh like flows a little bit more rounded ben is very very yeah, very very straight mm -hmm. and i think you know everyone has their own individual style right. and it's how the coach sort of molds that individual style so you talk about janet there are people might you know exceptionally high tempo stroke yeah that's yeah. high tempo high frequency mm -hmm. it's very very conditioned to maintain that similar to gregorio paltrinieri distant swimmer a lot of people uh criticize his stroke technique they well, it, it, the guy is incredibly connected underwater. Yes, he, yes, he, you know, people might say you can do this, you can do that, but I think him and his coach have done an incredible job, and they're 
you know, I, I actually believe with these people, if you try to tweak them and, you know, you try and change Gregorio's stroke or Janet's stroke, I think, I don't think they'd be as good because their technique is their technique and they've, they've found their way. And uh, that's, that's how they, that's how they get through the water. And I, I love to watch, you know, sometime above water, it, it tells you a story. You look underwater and you're like, just see these elbows exactly. just here. And you're exactly. like, don't touch it. I'm a coach. It's my job to try and make people better, but I can make them worse at the same time. Let's just leave that guy alone and let him let him go off in that direction. That's what Sergio Lopez says. He says like he gets a new athlete and he won't talk. He won't give any advice to the athlete for weeks. And his assistant's like, Sergio, why don't you tell him anything? I'm still watching. I'm still observing. I'm seeing what he's about before I say anything. And he wait eight weeks before he works that athlete for what athlete's about. And then how do you deal with all these different athletes that you have coming in, all the different backgrounds coming in, all these different cultures? How do you get to know an athlete, not just technical-wise, but to connect with the athletes? Like, you know, that's that's difficult, dude, for different cultures. Well, well first off, with I, I, I 100% agree with what Sergio said. And I guess he's learned his lessons as, as, as I did as a coach. Like, as, as a coach, you, you're supposed to fix everything, change everything when you get a new athlete. So when I when I get a new athlete into my program, I actually, I'm not sure, Brian, did I talk to you about this the other week or I'm not sure I did a podcast about yeah. having new athletes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know what, they, they come into your program like and they're and they're complete. They're, they're having to change. So they're coming into a new way, new style of training. So the sessions are different. The language is different from the coach. Every coach has a different way of saying hard, you know, brown, white, pink, rainbow, 67% threshold, lactate, VO2 max, and everyone dresses it up slightly differently. Uh-huh. I call it window dressing. There's a mannequin you're putting the clothes uh-huh. on. It. So, uh, you know, so the athlete comes in, they they get lost. Most athletes, when they come into a new program, they get a little bit lost because it's a, just a different way of working. It's slightly uncomfortable. Um, and little things, the warm-ups, so breaststrokers or flyers, they might be used to a certain warm-up, but then it's changed. So they're, so they're a little bit, they get a little bit lost with the program. And then if you start messing around with their technique as well, they can no longer feel the water. So they get lost, lost with their technique, a little bit lost in their bodies. Then all you end up with is a bit of a car crash, to be honest. And I've learned this by myself and, you know, my, my mistakes I've made with athletes, I'm not embarrassed to say it. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've made some terrible choices where – but you, you're trying to help people and I can fix this, do this, do this, do this, but they don't feel it. The, the mm-hmm. swimmer can't feel what you're trying to tell them. And they're all working different ways that like some are visual, some are feel, and some need to be explained in depth what you're looking for. And if you confuse the athlete, you just ending up banging your head against a brick wall. And so exactly the same with Sergio. If I ever get a new athlete, I take my, just stand back. Stand back. How are you feeling? What are you doing? The stroke doesn't yeah. feel good. Okay, we're not going to get that yet. Do what feels natural for you. Then once uh, they've adapted to that sort of the work environment, normally we're, we're quite a heavy dry land program. So, you know, the, the, normally the, the new swimmers we have do end up being quite sore a lot of the time and they get a little, they lose their feel a little bit. So, uh, yeah, that's how I work. I don't touch anything for a, a period. But then after a while, I bring in the video analysis. Normally it's just this thing. This is my biggest coaching aid. This it, it comes out instead of stopwatches mm-hmm. most of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's just a visual aid and always just start to leave the athlete alone, start to film the athlete, show the athlete how they're looking. And normally you get the response, oh, it looks a, a bit better, bit better than what I thought. Uh, and I try not to now, I try not to talk as much. Uh, I used to... I used to be the guy that just talk, 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 talk at the athlete, and now I just tend to ask a lot more questions. Yeah. How you doing? What are you yeah. feeling? And that, that seems to give me a lot more feedback as opposed to, you know, one of my older senior athletes uh, actually says, "Sounds like you just you, sometimes you sound like you're just niggling all the time," <laughs> and that's all we hear. You know, do this, do that, move that hand. That hand's wrong. You're crossing over. You're bouncing. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stop doing this. And it was actually an interesting bit of feedback for me. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, obviously, always trying to build confidence and confidence in athletes, even elite athletes sometimes aren't as high as you would imagine. And it's, you know, like you said, always kind of nagging on people. That's kind of what coaches do. I wonder if just in general, from a young age, if different ways can be done as far as shaping confidence and swimming profiles in the pool. I'd say 
the a junior program or a kids program is actually no different to a senior program. The, yeah. The the senior athletes want to want to have some fun <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> yes, it's serious. Yes, it, yes, you have to do what's necessary to win. You have to do what's the training what's necessary. But you have to provide an environment where learning is fun. Like mm -hmm. I have the privilege of working with Chad Leclerc. Mm -hmm. You know, he gives me energy, that boy. Yeah. <laughs> so I go to training and I feel good. Yeah. And, you know, like he just creates this environment where it's fun and it's enjoyable. And the athletes get after sets, they get out and uh, and it's, it's just all it, having him around makes the program better. And, and I'm sure every program like you guys who's from in the collegiate system, there's always one or two in a team, mm -hmm. you know, like a bit of the life and soul of the team. And you need these people. Um, so from from my point of view, is it's just providing, a, a, you know, just a, a good environment for learning. A, uh, but but also recognizing you have to do what's necessary. Do you change your approach to each athlete? You know, Mike Bottom is a behavioral psychologist and he got, he told Gary Hall the first time he saw him, Gary, that's amazing. Don't waste flip turns in practice. Just save it for the race because Gary would not flip turn. You know, like he had like a smart way of doing things. And, and he would treat Gary differently to how he treat Tony, how he treat these people. What's it like? Like, what if, I don't know what Flo is like. I, know, I don't know the man, but is he different to Ben? And is, is he different to Chad? And do you like raise your voice, lower your voice, kind, tough? push lay back do you change personally and how has that reacted how do you deal with that especially with the pros yeah absolutely you yeah. you know in, in europe we don't have you know we don't really have a one model fits all here because <laughs> we don't we never had we don't have the collegiate programs in in the u.s like i said to brian the other week i'm so jealous i never swam in the u.s i i i love i still love everything i still watch the ncs i still watch the results i still read the news and it was something I never got to do as an athlete, be part of 50, 60 swimmers on a team, all doing the same thing, training, that sort of camaraderie. And I really missed out on that. And um, I guess ISL, we have an opportunity now for the European guys. But, you know, you know, yeah, if, you, if I've got an elite group, I have 12 swimmers full time. I've got a young guy that grew up in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, he looks at the world very differently to James Gibson, who grew up in East London. Uh, we all have different parents, speak different languages, and we all come from different places. So I have my philosophies, and but what I feel like as a coach, I have to bend a little bit. I bend to the individuals, but then also the individual has to bend to me as well. And that's, this is how I do things. And uh, when you have a, a program with such different cultures and different backgrounds, there has to be an element of respect all around. It's not just with the athletes, it's the staff and the coaches. Uh, my staff, Tom Rushton from Canada, Delano Cesar from Brazil, Marco Cosa from uh, uh, Italy, Sardinia, uh, Petro Nahorni from Ukraine. We're all, we're, all, we're all different from different places. And I don't think some of my staff particularly like me. But then also that makes the staff good because they're all so different. Yeah, they're all from different places. And what I encourage with the staff, especially, just speak your mind. Speak it. There's no egos in elite sport. We've got to just get this out on the table. And it's the same with the athletes. We have to bend, we have to bend, and they also have to bend. You have your non-negotiables, like what my big non-negotiable is we have, is work. We have to do what's necessary to win the Olympics or the ISL. That's the first non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. And then also they have their non-negotiables as well. And I'm and I'm always open because with a lot of the guys like Florent, Peniel, Sarah, Chad, they've achieved greatness. And in their head, the way they achieve the greatness is very important. So you just can't ignore it. And, you know, some and some people have achieved greatness in ways that others might feel is strange. But this is the beauty of swimming. We all do it differently. There's no right or wrong answer. A lot of in the swimming profession, especially uh, I find it all quite brutal, to be honest. There's a lot of egos. There's a lot of people mm -hmm. that say, oh, if I did this, I'd do this differently. I'd do that. If I had that athlete, I'd do that differently and look at their technique. Uh, swimming, the swimming community is full of opinions, but, uh, you know, not a lot of people really know what's going on on the ground and that's where the coach and the, the swimmer you know that's that's their privileged environment and uh you know it's it's actually quite it's quite hard it's quite hard but yes back to the original question yeah i i, I i'm totally different with everyone because everyone needs something different from me what is it about the individual athletes? I feel like where the magic really happens, and admittedly, this wasn't something that I did really well, 
is the the best athletes in, in their coaching relationship, I think it is pretty close to 50-50, where you have this open dialogue and you can make a program together and you make concessions equally, like you said. Um, I'm wondering if there are any elements about, you know, in their character about the elite athletes, particularly some of the ones that maybe you have in your group who do this well. When, like, when do they start to develop this ownership of their performance and an understanding about their body and their training program and what they need. That takes a level of maturity. Some reach it earlier than others, but I'm curious if you've seen any trends from the people that really nail that well, if there were any common themes in their early development or the coaching tree that they came from. To, to be honest, I think it all has to do with the coaching they've received as a, as a junior, as opposed to anything that you know, what they go through now, because there's a, there's a lot of coaches out there that reflect their stress upon the athlete. And right, the athlete swims well because they're good, because they're good swimmers. I've seen so many people come through Gloria, um, not necessarily in my program and in other programs, so many elite athletes come through our training center and you look at what they're doing, you think that's crazy. Uh, how, how are they doing this or whatever? And then they go and win, win the world champs. <laughs> and you know, yeah. oh, Okay, maybe there's elements to that program. There's, they're doing something better than what I'm doing. And, yeah. uh, but I think it's a lot to do with how the athlete is being brought up. To, if they're being brought up in an environment, this is where the U.S. are, are fantastic. Because in the U.S., the athletes are encouraged to work with different coaches. Mm-hmm. In Europe, it's very much a system where that's my athlete, I own you. And there's this element where there's a protectionism in the coaches in Europe, but they don't really let the athletes work with different people, even within Britain or within other countries. And the coaches seem to, a lot of times seem to believe that, you know, that I've made that person good, which we all know it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit blurry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you say it's that way in the U S but I don't know that I fully agree. Maybe it's getting there uh, soon. And uh, well, I guess I'll say like, I don't disagree with the comparison between the two, but I know that like college coaches are competitive. It seems to, those barriers seem to come down when everyone's on a national team together, right, but if okay. it's one college program uh, versus another, then there isn't that information sharing. And I think that, and on the same note, I think that there's a lot of what I found to be, you know, as someone who wasn't highly recruited out of high school um, and coming into a program like Auburn at the time was the best in the country, you know, I was the the low one on the team. And so I needed to buy in and I, and then sudden, and then I trained this behavior of buying in, trusting the program, the program produces the results. And, and I think for me personally, that led to less of an ownership of my own uh, performance when it came to my professional career. And then I had to sort of grow into it. So um, okay. That was my perspective on what it's like in the U.S. But I, I, my point about the U.S. is when you were at Auburn, you you had four or five coaches on deck, and you'd work with mm-hmm. each of the pro- coaches, and so you were exposed to four, say five different coaches on deck: graduate assistant, mm-hmm. assistant coaches. In the U.K., for example, you have your coach, and that's your coach. Or in wow. Russia, or in Germany, you 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 don't really generally get an opportunity to work with different coaches within a week, mm-hmm. within a weekly program. So mm-hmm. uh, my, my point was more that uh, you, in the U.S., you're more exposed to different methods of coaching and, with, and different people through the college system. And so in, over here in Europe, you're not, you've kind of got an assigned coach and that's the person you see 10 times every week. That's the person that stood at the end of your lane. That's the person yeah. that's in the gym with you. That's the person that walks you to the blocks or wherever. Um, and uh, it's just a, a, a touch different. So one one thing I think you know over here, what, you know what, one what I'm trying to do, what I did, have tried to do with Energy Stand is to make it more replicate replicate some of the U.S. college systems where the athletes, they, you know, they work with everyone with all, all the coaches yeah. within the sort of the bubble. Yes, I you know I'm the head coach, like say a David Marsh or one of these guys, but the athletes are actually they're they're adaptable to working with any of the coaches really. Yeah. Yeah, as the head coach, and obviously at Energy Standard, you guys appear to have a great setup where you have physio, strength coach, physician, everyone kind of on staff there. Um, as a physio and strength coach, I know sometimes it can be challenging just to get communication and everyone on the same page. How do you go about that as a head coach of Energy Standard? I think it's just uh, making sure there's always a good level of transparency between the staff. Uh 
everyone knows the the goals and objectives and also trusting the staff uh, like uh, i'm going to use the example again at uh, auburn uh, you know david marsh had an exceptional relationship with pk the strength coach there and you know there was it was very fluid and i think you get to a point with the staff after after a while where you just you know that everyone knows the objectives of the program and and it becomes very fluid um initially yes uh, with marco the strength coach we took it we, we spent a lot of time together but now and just leave him be you know he knows what he's doing he's a professional and as a swimming coach you have to trust the people around you uh you know we're not physiotherapists we're not physiologists we know bits of everything but we're not experts so one thing i do is a I give a lot of level of trust to my, my, my staff around me and they, you know, let them thrive in the environment. And I also believe that you should just provide with certain things, some of your holes. Like I, I, I love distance swimming. I do. I'm just not a great coach of, <laughs> of, of distance athletes. Uh, but I had a, I've got a fantastic distance coach and I just provide him the tools he needs to be, uh, what he needs to be successful and they just keep out of his way. Uh, I try to get involved and talk technique, but uh, we've got 8K to do in two hours. Can you leave us alone? <laughs> generally, uh, I, I can add value. I know where to add value and I know where to keep away. I was going to ask you, um, Angie Standard is arguably the one of the top places to swim in the world right now, if not the top. Um, and swimming's gone through these kind of phases. Santa Clara Swim Club in the six days with Spitz and Haynes, we did. Uh, Indiana with Doc. Uh, we went up to, you know, now we have club centers around the world. AIS in Australia started it up with Don Talbot. Now what you guys are doing is quite um, um, unique and powerful and you seemingly have it well set up. You have, a, you have a, you, as John said, you have really good um, staff. You have a fantastic roster of seasoned, proven professionals. Gloria is an unbelievable place to train. But how do you keep it? What, what, what do you need to do? What, what's, what, what's missing? What's missing from energy standard? What, what are you trying to improve on? What do you guys look to do? You know, I mean, obviously, more funding always helps, you know, but are you helping? What, what's missing from making it even better than it is? Because I know you, your body's, you know, trying to up the game every day. Yeah, I think uh, I think the, the obvious thing is to make us uh, a bit more self-sustainable. Uh, you know, there's there's one thing, of course, we're very reliant on uh, one one significant backer, um, but we're we're moving that way. That's the goal of the club now, and the next the next sort of quad is to move to be very very self-sustainable, along with all the ISL teams. You know, for the ISL, for really to to re jump to the next level, you know, the clubs have got to take on. Uh, a very much more professional role. They've got to start bringing in revenue. Got to start bringing in income, which is only fair. You know the amount of money that's coming, being invested, and we've got to uh, uphold our end of the bargain. So yes, it's to move towards uh, significant self-sustainability. Uh, that's the first goal. The second is the like what what else do we need? You know what? To be, I, I I just do the basics with the program. My, that's mm. my my one of my philosophies. You know, mm. They're all the athletes you've got are good athletes. So just do the basics. Then just do the basics bloody well, mm. and then and then you're not going to have too many issues. So we don't, you know, we don't over fantasize the program. You know, a lot of people might look and say, oh, "What are they doing? What are they doing? They're doing this, doing something radical." No, nothing radical. It's just we do the try and do the basics as best we can. The weights the weights program is very basics. Basic, we get our market is generally a lot of the older athletes, the more established athletes. So uh, injuries, just <laughs> trying to keep them in the water, you know, is, is the main thing. So just do the basics better than anyone else. But yeah, move towards more of a, a self-sustaining model. Uh, that's probably more the plan. And, you know, get COVID to finish so we can actually do our jobs. Okay. I, I, I know there's a lot of relations to football and it's almost like Chelsea has a really strong owner, but they have really good sponsors as well. And they try and, and they have really re recurring revenue with their fans and their subscriptions. I, I, I guess that's where you're aiming for that kind of not just a single source, like you mentioned. Um, if you were to, to focus on the basics of these stars, what football club would you be? Um, soccer, um, John and Brian. <laughs> what what so, what well I would be what, the LA Lakers. Yeah, what football? You you be the Lakers, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to think, but we got beat this year by the Cali Condors, so we're probably not the LA. Jose earthquakes? Is that what soccer <laughs> club are going to be? No, 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 not not into Miami either. David Beckham's <laughs> not doing so good. 
No, uh, I'm, I'm talking about big stars focusing on the basics, making sure the, the love of the swimming and a good fan base, sustainable, a Lakers kind of mentality. So, well, in yeah, it has to be, and then also in soccer, more of a kind of a Manchester United, uh, Barcelona yeah. style. But uh, I like to, like I say, I like I like beautiful swimming as much as I yeah. like beautiful football. So I like to watch good Barcelona. swimming, and I love yeah. good technique. And yeah. generally, if it looks good, it goes fast. Obviously, uh, this has been a crazy year, but last year and, and before you guys were, you know, training together as energy standard, you had the professional team. And I think a lot of people view that as somewhat of an unfair advantage compared to the other ISL teams. Do you currently view that as an unfair advantage where other teams aren't training together and able to know their athletes as well? I think it's been a disadvantage this year. I haven't seen, uh, <laughs> and bear, yeah. bear in mind, I hadn't really seen any of my guys the whole year. And I'm not sure it would have made any difference. Like, I, that, okay, so yeah, I, I understand the question very well. Um, you also got to understand how the ISL was built. It was built mm -hmm. off of a, uh, a team that had zero credibility, was 100% uh, Russian Ukrainian. When I took over, I, I turned it over a few years into the best swimming club in the world by, rec uh, well, we didn't even recruit swimmers. We we decided that we wouldn't recruit aggressively. We'd, if anyone asked about the program, we'd invite them because the long-term game was always ISL. And we knew that if we start going after some of the best swimmers in the world, and you know, all you do is annoy the coaches, but we need buy-in from the coaches. So we sat back. We recruited very, very slowly. And uh, anyone that wanted to get involved, we invited them. And we, we tended to do this with the blessings of their coaches at home. Um, and we did think manage things the right way, but yeah, of course, you know, like we, we ISL was built on the credibility of the club, and we needed to develop at the club to actually launch the ISL. Otherwise, I'm, I'm pretty sure not many people would have bought into it from the rest of the world. And then, yeah, there, there is an element of you do have a, a slight advantage when you have most swimmers swimming together. Um, but then also look at this year, you know, that like if you recruit a lot of the skill is, is in recruitment. Uh, so the, the teams are good if they're recruited, you know, in they recruited well. Look at the Cali Condors were simply incredible, like Caleb and Lily. So it's 170 points in the final alone. That, and uh, I think the new jackpot rule hurt us significantly on last year. Uh, London recruited a fantastic team, but couldn't quite get the Australians over. LA Current were stronger. Uh, Tokyo coming in. So it was a, the league was a massive step forward uh, from last year. And yeah, I know, yeah, I know that we were, we were strong. We were strong. We actually fully upped our game. So we were stronger this year than we were last year. I know we didn't win, but our mm -hmm. team performance was much better. And I didn't really see a lot of the athletes at all at any point in the year. So I'm not sure we could call it an advantage. Yeah, James, uh, cl let's clarify that because I've, I I looked at your ISL roster and your training roster, and there's a lot more people in the ISL roster than your training roster. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, I mean, how many does David have in Team Elite versus the LA Currents? Is it a similar? I would love to know, describe how you're set up. You have 12 people who train with you year round. And then during the season, you get, uh, you know, you get the, 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 the extras come in and train with you beforehand or you, you just meet them at the bubble. Explain how the two and how they're all set up. Because I think so it's a big I, difference between. I, I have about, I'm just trying to think on my roster because Misha was with Aqua Centurions. Uh, I, I have about 10 swimmers with me basically full time that came onto the ISL roster and the other 30, well, 24, um, right. 24 were, were guests. Right. Uh, yes, uh, Felipe Lima came in for a few uh, a few weeks because he was needing somewhere to train, uh, which we were able to do. We had to help him out at the last minute. Um, so David, yeah, he has 14 swimmers in ISL, but they're spread out along all the teams. I remember him saying 14 on an interview we did the other week. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I got 10, but they were 10, 10 I'd say 10 significant swimmers. It, hmm. in, it's nice to, to know where they're at. It can, you can make some technical technical changes you can make some if you know if someone's struggling you you can just leave them out or give them some rest but to be honest with the isl this year was more you, you got a mixed bag you got 34 swimmers arrive um sorry yeah 32 swimmers arrive and you you just you end up just trying to piece a little bit piece everyone together trying to figure out uh where they're at we had a 
uh, young young girl who was phenomenal, Mary Sophie Harvey. She actually hadn't swum for ten days before she arrived because mm-hmm. the pools were closed down. She struggled the first meet. We yeah. even had to do the emergency subs, like pulled her out halfway through as a replacement, and then we put her to work for two and a half weeks, like actually real solid work. And uh, though she's not one of our full time swimmers, we then really kind of took over her program at the end. Mm-hmm. We obviously communicate with the coach at home, and uh, she just ended up fantastic fantastic yeah. so uh you know when you when you're there and hands on on the ground in isl you have to make decisions because you understand what's going on and even with the athletes you don't work with full time so my my guys yeah 10 generally 10 that i work with on a day well this year i would say daily basis i've barely seen them uh <laughs> talking via internet or text message or whatever uh and then uh, the rest all come in and we have to, we integrate everyone via that well into the group that way yeah you hit on a, a piece that i've been wondering a lot about because we've had some swimmers that um let's see i mean the, fir- the first reaction i had to season one of isl was wow the rosters on paper don't necessarily match up with the product you know the, the how people race during the season for whatever reason um, and you gave an example of an adjustment of somebody who wasn't maybe performing at the level they expected at the beginning. Together, you formed a plan, and that plan was put it through some work. How how frequently does that happen? And I'm curious specifically, what are some of the things that, um, like, what are what's happening in an athlete's program if you know the ISL season is you know six weeks long this time around. The other seasons even longer, but in a six week period. What are some of the adjustments that you're making to athletes' programs to to dial them in to get the bus out of them in a short period of time? But you know you can't just extend the taper the whole time, uh, or at least most people can't. And I think again that's a good question. It comes down to communication. Like we we got some background knowledge on Mary. We worked with her before, and we know she responds very well to some yardage. Mm-hmm. So as long as it's well communicated with the athlete, put them back to work. Um, and sort of, it was something as simple with Mary was conditioning, it was basic aerobic conditioning. She needed this and she came through fabulously well. Uh, someone like Bria Larson, she need, you know, she again had a bit of a struggle throughout the, um, the COVID period, uh, mm-hmm. couldn't really get the training access, but we, we put her in with a breaststroke group with a breaststroke coach and she ended up doing more breaststroke in the two weeks in between the matches and she'd done pretty much for well from the previous few months so you know it was all about just communicating with the athletes the ones that were a little bit off and and normally there was a reason for it and then you can put you know you can put the pieces together like Clement Kolesnikov as well didn't he didn't start off particularly flash I mean it was like 156 200 backstroke 50 uh, 51 something 100 back um but he was just he was just exhausted you know, what, and, uh, did you what did you do? Just tell them to sit down <laughs> the rest of the, you know, just go like, hey, just, you know, you're on taper the rest of the, no wake up swims, no nothing. Just get in for a light swim. What were you doing with him? No, he just needed a little bit of rest. So he's fortunately, his coach, Dmitry Lazarev, came on as a home coach, really got hold of him and uh, really took took charge of him. Like, you know, just, just started to back him off a little bit uh, to mm-hmm. make sure he wasn't so beaten up and going in for the, the next rounds. And, you know, he's, he's finished off this season with four of the top five fastest times ever. Uh, and that's not bad for a guy that started off pretty beaten up. And the first match, we were like, why? What's going on here? And then yeah. So suddenly, were we. Suddenly, <laughs> five lows in the relays and world records. And he was just fantastic. It was fabulous. Um, so and a lot of the things, a lot of, say, you know, with... with uh, maintaining the athlete's shape and conditioning we you know every athlete had a lot of them had different because again we say we still had 20 uh say 24 swimmers from different yeah. you know come from different coaches and different programs and they all had different programs so just trying to support them through listening to what they've got uh on their programs maintain like we had a fantastic staff we could we could pretty much accommodate everyone as we went through and Again, being open-minded, you know, if an athlete tells you they want to be doing six or seven K because that's what they need two days before the race, we, we, we tended just to, to go with it if they weren't people that we weren't training with us full-time. 
-hmm. Yeah, these are huge stories, and it's I, I'm excited to see where the ISL can go because I only think the sport of swimming will improve having these professional teams where coaches and elite athletes and support systems are around to help share ideas, to help push each other, to help keep each other motivated. We all know, at least in the U.S., after that college set, uh, when they're done with college, there can be a lull or they'll be training by themselves or just one or two other people. So having all these different pro teams with these great systems set up is something to strive for and something to be, I'm really excited for and will only elevate the sport. It's just, I think, like you said, the, the funding and getting the sponsorships and these teams to become a little more self-sufficient um, is going to be crucial for it. So with the funding and trying to find sponsors, where is Energy Standard looking? Is it mostly within swimsuit or swim apparel companies or how are you guys going about that? Well, as we as we found out this year, it was probably the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, this start. year was a crazy year, right? So I guess, uh, yeah, yeah, moving forward. <laughs> God, it's um, but we. I, I think you know what? As of you know, no no one's going to be able to use this for, as an excuse anymore. We got we got to find a way. And I think there's a lot of element of pressure on all the general managers now, uh, or the sort of like let's not call the general managers specifically, but all the senior management of all the clubs have really got to step up. Uh, to ensure the the success of this thing, because the platform is there. Uh, I, I think everyone yeah. agrees that it's a fabulous platform. I think, and most people have an opinion on rules, opinion on how it's run, opinion on something or a, something, or it's good and bad. But it's there, and it's a fabulous product. But we have to make sure that it has long term financial sustainability. And uh, a lot of the GMs, uh, and I mean included. Uh, you know, our role has been more to just organizational roles, recruiting teams, but we've really got to push the envelope now on uh, we need to get funding and finance. And, you know, if that means speaking to mayors of cities and councils and pushing people and, you know, actually, you know, demonstrating to people the value of having a, one of the world's best elite teams on uh, on your doorstep and that's something we've got to do i think you know i watched a presentation not so long about the the global participation of swimming and it still blows me away like in mm -hmm. the amount like things like in europe 29 percent of people actually actively participate in swimming 29 wow it's it's insane and it's the same all over the world like the, even the numbers all over the world the, the participation so there's, there's, there's a huge gap between participation and market uh, for elite sport. Like, how many sort of people over the age of 30 play American football? I know you guys, <laughs> you, know, uh -oh. you know, you know, you can't just put on your pads at 40 years old and go out and have a game of football. I'm going to try out right now. Luke sure would. Yeah. That's what's yeah. wrong with Luke. Way too many brain injuries still. <laughs> yeah, but the participation of... of, of U.S. football is 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 very low, <laughs> but the yeah. market is enormous. It's billions yeah. and billions of dollars. Um, so with, with this, there's a disconnect, but we don't know. And I, and I think this is a common problem that swimming has had for many years, not just now. Is like how do we sort of fill that gap? How do we make the sport sexy? How do we make it appeal to people? Is there a room for gambling companies and betting? And like we know with basketball, soccer, and football in the u.s it's the betting industry is is massive and you know i think everyone bets on who's going to get the first touchdown who's going to get the first uh, you know score at halftime score at whenever and hey that was my that was my that was my coping mechanism when i didn't make the 2012 olympic team i came back and i just bet on a bunch of races during the olympics <laughs> <laughs> how much did you win <laughs> not much i had i bet actually it's a true story I, I think I put 1500 bucks down on Soon Young to win the mile to pay out like two or 300 bucks. And that was the race where he fell in the, like <laughs> they blew the whistle or something and he falls in yeah, and yeah. Then he gets out and he's all pissed. And I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> and they let him go. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, so it exists, but nobody does that. I agree with that point. 
I think I think we need to care more, James. We need to care more about this. And, and you have athletes like like Chad, who's a such charismatic character out there and well loved, right? But we need to have rivalries and story arcs and and that's how the general public's going to start watching swimming more and care i mean it didn't help that tom and chad are such good friends and they're so hugging lovey dovey afterwards you yeah, know we needed them like like spitting their face i'm teasing but you know what i mean like we just need some characters and storylines and um and 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 does, the, does your mom watch swimming you know what I mean? Like, like, and, and why not? And why does she only watch it at the Olympics? Because at the Olympics, you got one time, one race for your flag to be flown and see Leclerc cry on the podium. And that's why we watch swimming at the Olympics. So how do we do that rest of the time? How do we care more? How, why do we care when Chelsea wins the FA Cup? Because we grew up loving Chelsea and we came from Chelsea. And, and, and you know, and they've never won before and shit like that. So I don't know. Mm. No, we need to develop uh, well, for ISL. We need to just develop sort of tradition. You know, yeah. why do people watch soccer? It's tradition. It's tradition. Yeah. It's been there every year. And I think when you know, when soccer, rugby, yeah. cricket, when they when they had these sport revolutions, when they become professional, the tradition had already existed. There is no tradition in swimming. You know, yeah. I'm sorry. Once every four years creates no tradition. The Olympics yeah. and. Yep. As much as we all love, I'm a world champion. I love the world championships. I was a world champion. Uh, no yep. one ever, I come back to England and nothing really changed. Nobody knows you. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one watched it. I think it was on, <laughs> uh, you know, it was on the high, some highlights was on at midnight or something. Um, but this is, this is it. There's no tradition in swimming yeah. and we need to develop tradition. And, and, you know, the ISL is going to take a bit of time already, but we already saw this year, you know, it was better than last year in the ISL. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, next year will be even better when uh, it, 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 people are m more associated with teams and the names and individuals are becoming more associated with teams mm -hmm. as we go. Um, I know there's lots of comments about uh, good teams. How do we make this more fair? But, you know, that if you look at the NBA or, or the La Liga or the Premier League in football or in NFL, there's always... Yep. One or two teams that are always going to be slightly better. Uh, it's just sport. There's, it's just what the, mm -hmm. the manage. Sometimes the managers just do a better job than other managers. That's just life. Yeah. And uh, but the actual the ISL. There's some plans to make it a lot more fairer next year. They're quite exciting actually. And already this year it seemed a lot a lot more even. And I think next year we could get into we could really get into a point where you've got six seven teams that are all very very even. Close. Yeah. And um, and that, that's the way to create tradition. And also mm -hmm. by, I know the clubs at the minute, Cali Condors, they need bases. And once you've got a base, you like you said, yep. you grow up watching Chelsea. And yeah. Yeah. if you're associated with local communities and there's an element of community mm -hmm. there, you can understand young swimmers, you know, mm -hmm. could grow up and they could race for London Roar or uh, they could swim in London. There's already there's discussions in London with local clubs, I think, mm -hmm. going on at the minute. Uh, this could be quite good for the development program. But with, yeah, there's lots, there's so many different things that ISL has to do and the general managers have to do, but it's, you know, we have to execute it to create that tradition to really build a sport of the future. Yeah, here, here. Yeah, I, I totally believe that that's possible. Uh, my hope is just that to your point about funding um, and, you know, needing to change the model and have the teams contribute and do that on a shorter timeline, you know, there's a U.S. soccer league called MLS, and they've been in business for 30 years, and they're still not profitable. And they're chasing what they think is a big pie, you know. But it, and it makes sense that in swimming, where the the perceived pie, you know, regardless of participation rates, etc., you know, that that we, as if a league owner would need to see some hustle around, you know, a shorter term to profitability. But um, you know, we're I, I think that you're right on the products. There, it's growing. It's in the right direction. Um, what do you guys think? You know, you're you're the you're the consumers. So, uh, well, I was waking up at weird times, three a.m., four a.m. to watch. I think, like you said, I think the product is there for, and I think trying to figure out who the ideal audience is. Like, obviously, we're swim nerds. We loved it. I still think, and we talked with Cindy Gallagher about it. How? Why the hell isn't USA Swimming pushing this more to get all these? club swimmers and club teams watching every event. I think that's mm -hmm. probably the easiest market are current swimmers or master swimmers 
they need to be really tackling that market a little bit more. So I'm not sure if it's yeah, the GMs pushing it in the U.S. and all over the place saying, hey, we represented USA Swimming. We need this to go forward or need more representation and, and viewership here. But personally, I freaking loved it. I, I can't wait for next year. Yeah, I think I think when you talk about tradition, for me, the word that has stuck out that I think is on a similar vein is fandom. Uh you know, we grow up around uh, being affiliated with certain programs, you know, uh, and for me, that upbringing was around a school, around college football. Mm -hmm. um, in other countries or other areas of this country, it's it's around professional sports, but you were affiliated by geography. And I think that's one of the things that's really struggled with ISO because the geographies are like ambiguous or even if they're known, they have no meaning. And so without that meaning, I think um, having some attachment to the grassroots is is lost. There's no more connection, and you and you know we're humans are tribal. We're we're meant to fit in with other. I mean, we're all the same color skin on this call, right? And it's like you know that happens in in swimming, but in general, the we're we're meant to and gravitate toward being part of a group, uh, and and so that's what ISL has got to create. And I think I think your point about tradition hits on that. I, I, I just think writing some notes. I'm just writing some yeah. notes. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is diamond, guys. You know, uh, one yeah. thing about it's about caring too. I mean, uh, a guy would set a world record and then okay, move on to the next race. I'm like, take a moment just to like feel what just happened and how monumental that is. You know, and let the audience know that. Um, I think that just seeing the guy celebrate or I don't know. It, we love the guy here in the anthem and, and having awards and, and crying on the podium and getting to feel for what he's like. That's that we didn't have that connection. And they came, they swam, world record, great, out, next race. Uh, let's just pause for a second. And so, was it too much? Was it too fast? No, and yes, it needs to be fast, it needs to keep going, but at the same time, chill. I don't know, it's really hard. Yeah, that's a tough one to balance because I know people like the speed. I like the speed because it's, you know, race, race, race. But then, like you said, oh, oh, and maybe it's short course meters and us Americans, we're not as familiar, but world record happens. We're looking up other times of what people are going. It's like, oh, wait, that was freaking amazing. Why aren't we uh, capturing that a little bit more? But Yeah, no, no absolutely. Guys, there's some, there's some awesome points there, some really good points. And uh I think it's, it's, it's difficult to get that balance, isn't it? When you're on a TV timeline and uh, yeah. you've got to get the guy, no, totally, yeah. got to get the guys out. And but yeah, you, you're right. We slowed it down a lot this year. It was slowed yeah. down a lot this year just yeah. to mm -hmm. really give the the guys, the commentators, a little bit of extra time just to explain what just happened. And yeah. uh, just, just to something about the speed. It's more about like Generation Z, the, 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 the yeah, generations yeah. that are. Uh, uh, you know, are led by the cell phones and they'll switch yeah. off. You know? yeah. um, so no, so no 400s, no 400s then. That's what I heard. <laughs> you know, you know, been taught four by 50 relays, bring them in yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. as well as. And, no, but the 400s have their place. They they provide the good yeah, entertainment. Yeah. And uh, they not like the men's, especially when Darnus was finished at 350. You know, that was a, <laughs> he that was, did that on purpose, that was, right? That's off for TV. <laughs> well, James, James, let's bring this thing to a, to a close. I got a couple of rapid fire questions with you to finish off. Come on in. All right. What's the hardest race in swimming? Uh, 200 backstroke short course. Short course. Ooh. All right. Olympic gold or world record? Olympic gold. What's something today's swimmers do, whether technique, training, whatever, to go fast that you wish you knew in your day? More emphasis on video analysis. Hmm. Is this true that you spoke openly about your intimidation tactics, like rolling your pecs? Did you intimidate people doing that? It was never to intimidate people, but I did it just for a bit of fun because someone told me to be different than every other person with a hat and a pair of goggles on. Luke's saying we need oh. a... <laughs> I... Wrap it. Wrap it. Just me out to Sergio. Just cut me out to Sergio. We have these little clips. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Les, do you prefer a quiet champion or somebody who celebrates? Celebrates every time. All right, then I got to know oh about Kajima's screams. Could you hear those from across the pool? Sorry? Could you hear Kitajima's screams from across the pool? Uh, across the pool, right next to me on one occasion. About, about, right half, a meter, about half a meter away. <laughs> uh, that would be so annoying. 
Oh man, <laughs> I love it. Uh, right Costco is a is a good guy. We've always had a a good relationship, and it's nice now that we're both running teams. And uh, yeah. I sort of. I actually got the better of him this year, so I'm happy. Hell yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, hey man, it's good to good to chat again. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, and we look forward to to seeing what happens. And wish you the best with uh, the COVID situation and travel and and the situation with your team. But I know you'll make the most of it. We'll look forward to watching Energy Standard and your progress this year. So thanks a lot for hanging out, James. Um, yeah, we appreciate it. Cheers. No, I much appreciate it, guys, and thanks for having me on. Uh, always an honor to sit and speak with people about swimming and also thanks for your feedback in, on uh, many of the issues that ISL has and uh, it's all valuable very very valuable thank you hey everybody thanks for hanging out with us if you're enjoying Social Kick tell your friends about it and make sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment and make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we're also available on YouTube at the Social Kick Podcast and you can find all of our content on our website at thesocialkickpodcast.com.